You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Hi, everyone. Happy New Year. We here at N2K took the last week of December off from our daily programming, so we have about a week's worth of news to catch up on for today's show. I'm sure nothing too big happened in that one week. Uh, wait, hang on, scratch that. Ends up quite a bit went on while we were out. So let's get caught up today, shall we? T-minus. 20 seconds to LOS. Today is January 2nd, 2024. Happy New Year, crew. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T-Minus. India's ExpoSat launched to study black holes. China completes its Meridian project to study space weather. The U.S. Space Force launches its X-37B space plane. And our guest today is Itay Glick of OpSWAT discussing Aeroblade, a group that's using spear phishing to target U.S. aerospace organizations. Let's take a look at our New Year's Intel briefing, shall we? And India started off the new year right with the launch of a science mission from Sriharikota spaceport yesterday morning, local India time. Aboard ISRO's PSLV, or Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle, was the ExpoSat, or the X-ray polarimeter satellite, which itself contains two payloads, both with the aim of studying bright astronomical X-rays emanating from things like black holes, neutron stars, pulsar wind nebulae, and active galactic nuclei. We should mention that yesterday's launch also had 10 other scientific payloads aboard in addition to the ExpoSat, and you can read more about those rideshare missions in our show notes. China has announced the completion of the Meridian Project, which links hundreds of instruments across the country for end-to-end monitoring of solar activity. According to Chinese media, it's a world first in space weather monitoring. The project cost $212 million and took eight years to complete and forms the largest network of ground-based observatories on Earth. 
China's National Space Science Center Director Wang Qi says the Meridian Project, quote, will not only safeguard China's major space infrastructure for national strategic needs, but also push Chinese scientists to the forefront of space weather research. China plans to expand the 300 instruments it is currently using for the project to eventually encompass 5,000 instruments across dozens of countries. And speaking of China, a Chinese Long March 3B rocket launch on December 25th resulted in a near-miss catastrophe. The rocket was carrying two satellites for China's Beidou Navigation Satellite System, which is similar to the GPS system used in North America. The satellites were successfully delivered into medium Earth orbit, but according to a video posted on social media platform X, the side boosters of the multi-stage launch vehicle fell back to Earth and landed in South China's Guangxi region. The booster's fall was caught on camera by bystanders, and the video shows the booster landing in a forest area in the region, and reports say that the other booster landed near a home. This is the second time that boosters have caused damage to the region. In 2019, a booster reportedly destroyed a home in that same area. Thankfully, with this recent incident, there have been no reported injuries thus far. And another launch that occurred over the festive season was the U.S. Space Force Boeing-built X-37B space plane. The vehicle was lifted to orbit by a SpaceX Falcon Heavy on December 28th. The Space Force says this achievement not only highlights the program's two-decade-long legacy, but also signifies continued progress in reliable and resilient launch capability. According to the Space Force, the USSF-52 mission was launched into a new orbital regime, opening up new experimentation opportunities and allowing the U.S. to stay ahead in space capabilities. This is the seventh flight of the X-37B since 2010, and although we know very little about the payloads, we do know that it will test future space domain awareness technology experiments that are said to be integral in ensuring safe, stable, and secure operations in space for all users of the domain. Australia is looking to space to help track cattle and buffalo in its northern territories. The animals are a major threat to the ecology and economy of northern Australia. Scientists are now collaborating with stockmen and indigenous rangers on a four-year monitoring program. Dubbed Space Cows. (laughs) What a great name. The large-scale remote herd management system is supported by the Australian government's Smart Farming Partnership Initiative, and combines AI and satellite use. Local rangers and stockmen have been catching the animals to attach solar-powered GPS tags. The tag data is then directly transmitted to a space-based satellite system at an altitude of 650 kilometers for up to two years or until the tags fall. That is a super cool use of space to improve life on Earth. And man, space counts. Roscosmos has announced that Russia and America will continue to keep launching crew on each other's spacecraft to the International Space Station through 2025. The relationship between the two nations has been tense since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Most space partnerships were severed with Russia aside from the ISS, which remains for space policy reasons. But NASA has not yet confirmed this agreement. 
Before the holidays, NASA issued a best practices guide for space security to bolster mission cybersecurity efforts for both public sector and private sector space activities. NASA aims to provide best practices for implementing safety and security measures that cover both the space vehicle and the ground segment. The guide leverages security controls as defined in the NIST special publication, and NIST in this case is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And that special publication serves as a translation guide between NIST verbiage and NASA flight project parlance. The underlying security principles and associated controls were identified through an iterative process to address the tactics, techniques, and procedures that today's cyber actors use in attempts to compromise mission capabilities. The guide is to be used as an initial starting point to mitigate against any efforts to deny, degrade, disrupt, deceive, or destroy information and technology used to accomplish NASA's mission success. And of course, you can and should read it in full by following the link in our show notes. And speaking of NASA, the president of the Navajo Nation has requested that NASA delay the January 8th launch of the Vulcan Centaur carrying the Peregrine Mission 1. And the reason is that the mission is said to be carrying, among other payloads, human cremated remains to the moon. NASA had promised to consult with tribes before authorizing any missions carrying human remains to the moon after the ashes of former geologist and planetary scientist Eugene Shoemaker were sent to the moon in 1998. Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren says the moon is sacred to numerous indigenous cultures and that depositing human remains on it is, quote, tantamount to desecration. NASA has not yet responded to the request. And that concludes our briefing for today. You'll find links to further reading on all the stories I've mentioned in the selected reading section of our show notes. And we've also included a story that claims that China and Russia have tested hack-proof quantum communication links from a satellite. And all the links can be found on our website, space.nduk.com, and just click on this episode title. Hey, T-Minus crew, if you're just joining us in the new year, welcome. Be sure to follow T-Minus Space Daily in your favorite podcast app. And also, if you could do us a little New Year's favor, share the intel with your friends and coworkers. So here's a little challenge for you. By Friday, please show three friends or coworkers this podcast. That's because a growing audience is the most important thing for us, and we would love your help as part of the T-Minus crew. So if you find T-Minus useful, and of course, we certainly hope that you do, please share it so other professionals like you can find the show. Thank you so much for your support. It means a lot to me and all of us here at T-Minus. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. 
Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. My guest today is Itay Glick of OpSWAT, which is a cybersecurity analyst firm. And I wanted to chat with Itay about Aeroblade, a group that's used spear phishing to target U.S. aerospace organizations. And I started off by asking Itay to explain what spear phishing means. Well, uh, a spear phishing campaign is actually an email that the hacker is sending to somebody specific inside the organization. And in within that organization, this email would create some kind of attention. Okay. Uh, the attacker would try to relay to a post he wrote, to a job offering or whatever, and try to engage with him. Okay. So this is a spear phishing campaign. And uh, this is about Aeroblade. Now that we have a better understanding of what we mean by spear phishing, because people may have heard phishing, but spear phishing is sort of a, a flavor of that. So Aeroblade specifically, um, since we're not a cybersecurity show, but we are an aerospace show, uh, this is where we get into the why we're why we're talking about this on T minus. What is Aeroblade, and what happened with this attack? What is it? What's going on? So the attack on Aeroblade was used to extract information from the company, and the idea of uh, a hacker is to gain something. Either they want data, or they want money, or they want both, or they want to create destruction inside the organization. In this case, what they tried to achieve was get into secret information, confidential information. Now, I would say that aerospace industry have a tendency to being targeted for IP espionage. I think over the last decades, we've seen multiple cases where data from one aerospace company was then found in a different side of the world uh, as a replica. Uh, this means that there is a marketplace selling this information. This could be actually state-sponsored, meaning a state is actually saying, hey, I want this, whatever they are developing, I want to develop, I want to know. Maybe I'll develop, maybe not, and they're spending money to get it. Or they're paying for somebody to bring it for them. Um, so this is what they got. They got the IP of the company eventually. They have been in the organization for many months and they can get to the wherever they want when they're in. Yeah. So with Aeroblade specifically, um, an aerospace company was targeted by a spear phishing campaign. And then when this malicious email found its way to the company, what happened next once? Wh what do we know about what happened? So what uh, has been seen, and this has been... Uh, research by BlackBerry, uh, that the hackers have been able to access the network since September 2022. And then they have moved into a more offensive phase in July 2023. And they've so a whole year later. Yes. And, and they've been active since then till they were discovered about two weeks ago. They had a lot of time in the organization. Uh, the attack started with a a very simple document that lured the employee of the organization to press a simple link called enable content, 
whenever you see enable content in a document that you don't trust, don't trust, don't trust. Yes. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good very important. Pro tip. <laughs> yes. Yeah. This is the first sign. Uh, so, but when the hackers are sophisticated and specifically using spear phishing, the one receiving the mail would want to engage. They might say to them, hey, listen, this is a new RFP from customer XYZ. Are you interested to participate? Just press on this document. And they would, oh, sure, I want to see what it is. Okay, so this is how they engage. This is how they lure their subjects to interact. And as soon as they open the document, an attack chain, this means a set of operations done by the computer is executed. And at the end, a malware is installed on the device. I mean, to me, it's amazing that it sat for a year. That, I, I think, I, I, I don't know if people realize it's not always necessarily an instantaneous thing that where, you know, somebody gets attacked and, you know, if they get discovered, it's, it's soon. A whole year they sat sort of lurking. Uh, who knows what kind of damage was done? I'm not trying to scare people, but that, that's a long time. So that, that, that's pretty surprising to me. So you had mentioned that aerospace companies especially they they because of the intellectual property that they have they are often targeted for acts of theft like this would you say that spear phishing is a spe specifically a threat that aerospace companies are are facing more than maybe you ran you know a drive by ransomware or something are they more likely to be targeted in attack this way so i i think that it depends on the hacker and what he wants to achieve same the, the, the issue is that a lot of the organization, the critical infrastructure one, have been evolving over the last years to be more protected from ransomware, meaning they have backups in place and, and they have a um, mechanism to detect that somebody is encrypting their drives. Uh, so, and they have the recovery with the backups, of course. So the, the attackers need to find a different way to make money if it's an external attacker. But if it's a state-sponsored attacker, they can actually say, okay, we want this information, we'll get in, we'll get it. And then we, we have achieved our goal. So either the, the hacker group got the money instead of a ransomware, but by selling the information, or the state sponsor got the information instead of implementing a ransomware, which is very noisy. You know, if you put a ransomware that encrypts all the devices in the network, everybody knows about it in the, in immediately and you didn't get anything. If you want to get the confidential data, you need to wait until you find everything you want with minimal noise as possible and try to stay there, not for a year. You want to stay there for 10 years. Okay, you want to be constantly there listening, replicating and protecting yourself. You would be very covered and very uh, accurate in what you do to prevent somebody from detecting you. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So We've talked about what happened in, in this specific case and, and maybe the risks that aerospace companies may specifically be facing. Um, what do they do about it? So as you mentioned with ransomware, a lot of organizations probably, hopefully, have a number of protections in place. But for something like spear phishing, where someone is being very specifically methodically targeted, what are the recommendations there? So the, the easiest recommendation is awareness training, okay? Make sure that everybody knows to be more Considerate on what attachment they're opening, what enable content they're pressing. Uh, this is the, the obvious uh, thing that an organization should do. And then they need to consider more technical ways to handle that. And in some cases, more cutting edge technologies. One of them is, of course, to a technology that is able to extract 
proactively malicious content from a file and not only detect it. And the other technology is to be able to, to do a sandbox, to, to see what happens if I would run the file, what would happen and what really inside that file. Uh, those two technologies are very important and it need, they need to operate in real time in order not to impact the workflow of the organization. All right, so we've we've covered sort of the, uh, I think the, the key part of what we need to talk about for this story. I want to make sure though that um, if there's anything that I missed or anything that you wanted to talk about uh, or, or just mention for the show that I give you that opportunity. So I'm sort of handing it over to you. Is there anything that, that you wanted to mention before we close out? Yes, one, one simple thing. There, there is a, a recommendation, I would say, by many of the uh, Gartner-alike firms in the market to perform what's called an email security assessment. Okay? In, in this action, what you actually do is you monitor what has been passing your existing security to see what you have been missed. Okay, so really trying to understand if there are things that your existing solution is not good enough for. Uh, this usually goes in line with pen testing. It's very similar, but the idea is different. Instead of attacking, you actually rely on what's already there. So you can actually show that the threat is real. And, and this is, I believe, also a very important tool in the arsenal of, of an organization to do a checkup to see what's going on and to see that you don't miss anything. It makes a lot of sense given how much information we're sending to each other via email. Uh, that it, I, would, I would imagine it is, the, it is the place where a lot of attacks begin from. So, um, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. All right, uh, Itay, thank you so much for your expertise and your time. I really appreciate you walking me through this, and I think our audience is going to learn a lot and get a lot out of this conversation. So thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you. We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Welcome back. And whether or not you set a New Year's resolution, and no judgment here for me either way, really, because I'm garbage at them personally, if you'd like to be a bit more in tune with what's going on astronomically this year, I've got a little tip for you that might just help. It's a tool I have found handy for years, and you might as well. It's the New York Times Astronomy and Space Calendar. And no, you do not need to be a New York Times subscriber or even really go to the New York Times website for it, though I do recommend it. The New York Times maintains a digital calendar of major astronomical events, as well as really big marquee events in spaceflight. You can just click the calendar link and add it to your Google Calendar or Apple iCloud or Outlook Calendar, whichever system you prefer, really. It's a very handy little service, and it's entirely free. And we've linked it for you in our show notes. 
taking a look at the calendar, let's see what's coming up for this week. Oh, hey, the Earth will be at its perihelion, or the closest point to the sun, tomorrow. And tomorrow and Thursday, the quadranted meteor shower will also reach its peak. And the Times makes a point to mention that while the quadrantids will be one of the stronger meteor showers in 2024, since it's best viewed from the currently cold, cloudy, and somewhat brightly moonlit northern hemisphere, the quadrantids will also be very hard to see if they can be seen at all. Oh yeah, and they also might only peak during daylight hours? <laughs> Definitely some meteor hunting on hard mode there. So don't get your hopes up too much for the quadrantids, I guess, but good meteor shower hunting nonetheless. And thankfully, there are plenty of other meteor opportunities later this year. Just keep an eye on that little calendar that we mentioned so you can keep an eye out. That's it for T-minus for January 2nd, 2024. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, from the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Jen Iben. Our VP is Brandon Karp. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year!